This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 56 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Remy Brixton, the founder and CEO of Freck Beauty. Freck Beauty is a clean beauty brand that began with Remy's obsession for freckles and her drive to create the world's first freckle cosmetic. Channeling the diversity of East LA, where Remy lives and the brand is based, the team behind Freck Beauty is creating an attitude with products made for anyone who cares about ingredients, respects the process, but doesn't care about the rules. In this episode, Remy shares with us her journey from growing up in Seattle to working as an interior designer to taking her small one product business and growing it into a national clean beauty brand with retail presence at Urban Outfitters, Sephora, Revolve, and Nordstrom. She talks with us about how she overcame a failed Kickstarter campaign, rose from the ashes of public humiliation after being mocked on TV by Jimmy Kimmel, and how she learned from some early mistakes in taking money from the wrong investors. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an amazing review. We'd really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Remy. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story in building Freck Beauty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? So I'm from Seattle, Washington, um, and I am the founder of Freck Beauty, as you said, and I grew up without any freckles and always was wanting them and so envious of people who had them because I grew up in a place without very much sun. Um, but I'm- Why did you want freckles? Oh my God. I mean, they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Like I've always obsessed over them. But where did that come from? Where did that come from? What started that? You know, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I wish I did. Like a family member or like some like picture of some model somewhere that had lots of freckles or nothing, what, nothing. You can't remember anything that may have inspired that. No, literally nothing. And like, when you look at my drawings from when I was a kid, like the sun has freckles and the plants have freckles and the dogs have freckles. Like everybody has freckles who shouldn't. Um, And so I just always have loved them and appreciated them and been envious of them. You're like, why don't I have freckles? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But to answer your question, I'm from Seattle. (laughs) And so um, growing up, you know, did you have any siblings? What did your parents do? What was it like as a kid? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a sibling. Their name is Adrian. They're two years younger than me. They're a badass. They live in Washington still. Um, but I actually had like a pretty unusual childhood. My dad was a captain of a container ship. So he would be gone for 10 weeks at a time and then back for 10 weeks. And when he was back, he was like full-time dad. And then when he was gone, obviously he was gone. And this was in the, you know, early nineties and there wasn't like cell phones and like there wasn't reception on international waters. So he was really gone for 10 weeks Mm. at a time. 10 weeks. Yeah. 
That's a long time. I know. And when I was growing up, um, my parents did this thing called home trading, which was really cool because to take advantage of the fact that he would be home for 10 weeks at a time, he would try and like stack that over our summer breaks. And then we would go to like Barcelona and um, we would find like a family in Barcelona and trade houses, which was really cool. So like you just pay for your plane ticket and then you can like be in a different country for 10 weeks over your school vacation. But um, cool. so sometimes he would actually stack up and be gone for like 20 weeks at a time in order to, to maximize our summer vacations, which I'm very thankful for. But at the time it was like, it was kind of rough being yeah. without your dad for so long. Oh, that whole idea of trading. I did that once actually with my first trip to LA from New York. And I mm-hmm. let this girl stay in my apartment in New York, which was way better than her place in LA. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this is not an even trade. And this happened over <laughs> Craigslist and I didn't do it again. That was not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, luckily now it was so funny. Like back in the day, they had like a phone book. And if you were like a member of the home trade community, you would get like a phone book of all the houses. But now everything is obviously online and you can get like a better, like an Airbnb representation and ratings and all that stuff of the place that you're going to. But yeah, over Craigslist and back in the phone book days, like, no, it some it often, it often was not uh, what was advertised. <laughs> That's hilarious. So what did you want to be when you grew up when you were younger? What did you kind of dream of? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be an orthodontist, hmm. which is really funny. Um, I had because I had really, really crazy teeth. And so did my sibling. And I went through eight years of hardcore orthodontia, but I loved my orthodontist. Hmm. And he owned his own business with his dad. And I just loved going to the orthodontist and like we, I just had so much fun there. So I really want to be an orthodontist. But then um, when I was in high school, I switched over to wanting to be an architect slash interior designer, which is what I ended up doing before I started Freck. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, when you were in school, did you play any sports? What was it like school wise? Yeah, I actually um, was a very competitive uh, sprint kayaker. Wow. A sprint kayaker. Yeah. Which is a random, random, um, sport. I have actually, I'm really tall. I'm almost, I'm like 5'11". I'm almost six foot and I have terrible hand-eye coordination and foot-eye coordination. Like none. I wonder if that's like a tall person thing. I mean, I'm only 5'9". I feel like I'm pretty tall, but I have really bad hand-eye coordination too. Yeah. But then you have basketball players, right? So. Right. Who are really tall and you have women's basketball players, but yeah, no, it just, for me and my tallness, it didn't, <laughs> sports were not my forte, but, um, I started, uh, in my sprint kayaking group when I was in probably like seventh grade, I want to say. Um, and I was like, when I was a kid, I went to like this amazing K through eight art school in Seattle, like public art school, kind of like a magnet school that was half art school and half um, ESL, English second language students. So it was super diverse, amazing art program. And like, you know, we went to art school, uh, art class, music class, and like art science class every single day from kindergarten through eighth grade. But I was a huge loser, quote unquote, you know? So I didn't have that many friends. And then when I joined this kayaking group, um, I really like found my stride pun not intended, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with, with like a really amazing group of friends. And I did that until, um, my sophomore year in high school, when we moved, I moved, my family moved to Washington, DC. Awesome. So you're in Washington, DC and in high school. And so where did you go to college? Did you want to go to school and where'd you end up going? Um, I was actually a terrible student. I was such a rebel and I was so, so bad in school. Like, I mean, I I don't say like I was bad, like as in my marks weren't great, which they weren't. But the reason why I was quote unquote, a bad student is because I would constantly be in like an authoritative argument with my teachers. And for instance, if there was something that was like really busy work, I would just do it until I learned it. And then I wouldn't turn in the assignment. And then I would spend all my time working on like the final paper or something. So I kind of like skated by, you know, my, my marks were okay, but I really was focused on like the things that I perceived to gain the most knowledge from. And I really attribute that to the fact that I went to a Montessori, Montessori school for like uh, preschool and like early elementary school. Um, so 
<clears throat> by the time I got to Washington, D.C., and I was moved in my junior year of high school, which is a horrendous time for any adolescent to move, as you can imagine, um, I just was like not not having the greatest time in school. And so I did fine. And then I actually moved back to Seattle um, going into my senior year of high school. So it's my last year there. Awesome. So what kind of internships or jobs did you have early on, whether it was in high school or college? Yeah, um, I actually, this is one of my favorite things about myself. By the time that I was, well, I begged, like pleaded my parents to take me to a Red Cross babysitting certification class. Like by the time that I was in- Learn CPR? Learn CPR, learn baby CPR, like all just like, you know, because I thought that this is what you had to do to be a babysitter. Like I thought you had to go through <laughs> credentials, right? Very, very, uh, you know, um, discounting your own abilities as a young CEO. Um, <laughs> but I started begging them when I was in like first or second grade, I think. And so by the time I was in maybe like fifth or sixth grade, I had a monopoly on my entire neighborhood, like a whole four block radius. And like, you better not step on my turf. Um, so I was super into babysitting. I bought my first computer when I was in like seventh grade. And that was back when like, you remember like the first MacBook that was on your desk that had the camera. Yep. That was when that very first camera computer came out. And I was so proud of myself for like working so hard and saving up all that money. But, um, I always have worked. I've always been a really hard worker and like, again, more than, more than a stellar student, just because I am kind of um, a, a difficult person. I always was a great worker and had like a really great friend group. But as far as like jobs, my first official job was at this company when I was living in Washington, DC called Handwriting Without Tears, which was like a, um, this is actually a pretty funny story. I was an, in, I was a marketing intern there and I, uh, they didn't think it was just kind of a thing that they did for like I don't even, I had no direction. You know what I mean? There were a company that was, you would, you know, practice your handwriting. Um, and it was for very young students, but it wasn't about like uh, phonics or anything. It was literally just handwriting. Um, and so I was their marketing intern and I came up with this idea for myself to do because I was so bored, like packing orders and not learning anything about marketing that I did an entire research project on how many, um, standardized tests over all the states of the country like you could get uh you could just get a, a nil zero score if your handwriting wasn't up to par and so I built out this whole research project and this whole binder and presented it to the owner of the company one day and she didn't know who I was um and she was like oh okay and then they ended up selling their workbooks to the you know, public schools in a number of new states actually because of that. So that was pretty fun. And then when I was in college, I also, you know, I, I was an interior designer and I worked for um, my domain, which is owned by Who, What, Where and Birdie and like the Click Media Group and was their first um, editorial intern when they first launched, which was a really cool experience. That is a pretty cool experience. What were some of the things that you learned, um, you know, from those early days that you kind of have taken with you now as a founder? I mean, I think that everything that you learn is super valid. Um, I think particularly with that handwriting without tears experience is like, you know, I think that they just had interns because it, I don't know if it was like a, a tax purpose for them or, or what it was, but there was really no direction. And I think that like, you're able to find purpose in your work, regardless of uh, uh, like you're able to push the limits for yourself if you want to. Um, and I think that's something that I've definitely held in my, in my career now. And so you worked as a designer, interior design, it looks like furniture design, also mm -hmm. hospitality design, um, you know, through all these experiences that you've had in the design world, how did that help shape, you know, building Freck Beauty? Mm -hmm. It's actually so magnificently huge that I can't even like really do it justice, but I'll try. Um, so I went to school first for marketing and branding at Evergreen State College. And then I moved to LA and I went to school for interior design here. So 
at the time I was like, I felt like I was making this insane career pivot from marketing and branding to design. Um, but now that I own a company, I'm like, oh, that these are the exact like skills that I needed to be able to do what I'm doing now. But um, speaking specifically to interiors and design, I mean, the thing that I think one of the things that makes Rex so unique is our packaging, um, which is eco-conscious. And if you see the packaging, it's just really simple and straightforward. And it also goes into like our overall branding and our aesthetic. It's like uh, my favorite product that we make is called Cactus Water, which is a lactic acid toner. And it's just this like beautiful white bottle or sorry, glass bottle with white um, text on it. And I, when I was designing it, I kind of thought of it as like a mirror. And with all of the packaging and all the design that we do, like I mock up the packaging design and I like throw it into bathrooms that I've designed in the past. And I always want our packaging to be like your vanity brag. More importantly than that, I want um, the end customer to feel represented and not like pink and purple and bright green shoved down your throat in your bathroom. Like your bathroom is your space and I want our packaging to reflect that. So you do all the um, packaging design and all the branding and design assets for Freck? Um, no, I have a team now, obviously. <laughs> I can't do it all myself as I've, as I've come to learn, but um, I do oversee it all and I'm still creative director as well of the company. Yeah, but in the early days, me and my brand director, Miss Sarah, who's a total badass, um, did everything ourselves, like nuts to bolts, every single thing. That's awesome. And so what was that aha moment you had um, that really propelled you to want to launch Freck Beauty? You know, I think every founder gets this question often, and there honestly was not one for me. Um, Freck started as a Kickstarter, and back in the day, it was called Go Freck Yourself. So it was definitely a little bit more aggressive back in the day. Um, and I, uh, the, the Kickstarter failed. It was very publicly embarrassing too, because it went viral. And like, even it was on Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel just like ripped 90 seconds of our Kickstarter video and showed it on the air and then like made fun of it with. What him. did he say? What were he some of the just, things? He was just like, how hard is it? Like, you just need a pen. And then he like pulls out Guillermo, his, I think, head of security and Guillermo has pencils on and. Guillermo was like, I like them. And Jimmy was like, uh, yeah, no, not for me. So definitely it was pretty humiliating. Ouch. Yeah. You know, I so mean, were you like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this or what, where were you, where was your head after that happened? Yeah. So I definitely like went into a little bit of a depression hole for like a month. Um, and not even just depression as much as just like, oof, like when you run a marathon and, and it's not even like you don't win, you don't even cross the finish line. And that is, it sucks, you know, that feeling. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nasto.com slash stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. It's not great. Yeah, it's like you didn't even cross the finish line. They're just like throwing oranges and lemons at you like as you're trying to cross the finish, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of like, you know, I mean, it's funny, like whatever was sparked in Jimmy, I think was, has been sparked in a lot of people. It's just like your relationship with your freckles from a young age and everybody has a different relationship with their freckles. Like either they love them or they hate them or they have tried to laser them off or they wish they had them. Um, It's a really like personal thing, you know? So, um, but aside from that, like clearly it rubbed Jimmy Kimmel wrong. (laughs) and it has with a lot of people you know before then and since then did that help in any way though I mean I mean with Jimmy Kimmel saying it whether it was negative or positive did it drive any you know sales or attention and awareness to the brand was it helpful well it did but it was a kickstarter and it was you know as you know with kickstarter it's like if you don't fund the whole amount which the whole amount was like a quarter million dollars I was never going to get there so it did, but it's like, you know, if you don't, if you don't cross the finish line, you don't get any of the money and you can't start your business essentially, or you have to find another way. But yeah, I mean, it did, even though it was like a shitty feeling in the moment, I was like, okay, well, clearly this is like something that people have a reaction to. So it's probably not worth totally giving up on, but back to my depression hole. So I like just kind of like chilled, sat, um, read, and just kind of was like, I'm going to give it a month and see how I feel. And then at the end of it, I kind of was just like, you know what, like, I I feel like I could like simplify this and make this a lot easier for myself and a lot less pieces. So I went back to the drawing board and completely reinvented the product, which is what it is now. But yeah, it's definitely, it's hard. You but know? what it's, made I, you want to get back on the horse? You know, what was there a moment where you're like, all right, I need to stop feeling sorry for myself and get back on the horse and, and actually do this. I want to try this again. Like what inspired you to, to get back in the saddle? Yeah it wasn't an option not to. And like, for no reason other than I wanted freckles. I I wish there was a better answer to this, honestly, but I wanted freckles so badly. I knew that like my close group of friends in East LA did. And I was like, I never, never in a million years, I think we're going to get where we are today. But I was just ready to like, keep at it and try and figure it out. And like, I really love puzzle, like the concept of a puzzle. Funnily enough, I don't actually like, like puzzle portions. But I was like, it's just like one little piece at a time. And if I just keep working at it long enough, hopefully I'll figure it out. But it really wasn't about like starting a business or making money. I just wanted to like see something through to the end and and see if I could do it really with no experience in beauty and really no relationship to beauty myself being from Seattle and not like having a, a background in beauty at all. So what, did, what was the first move from there where when you realized, okay, I want to get this going again, I have to make this happen. What was your uh, first like three things that, that were priority to get the business back up and going? Mm-hmm. So one, finding a new lab with way lower minimum order quantity, not doing turnkey, which is like for anyone listening, it's when you take an idea to somebody and they source the raw ingredients to the formulation and fill to the packaging to the final pack out like nuts to bolt every single thing so finding somebody who wasn't going to do that so that I could hit those lower MOQs minimum order quantities and really like develop the relationships with the vendors so that was like step one is like strip it down make it it's going to be harder but you're going to be able to actually get this idea off the ground number two was like uh I guess figure out how to make a website, you know, like something. And number three was, I actually was introduced to um, an early investor through a friend who didn't end up being my investor, kind of was like a handholder. And then he introduced his brother to me and he gave me $15,000, one five. And in return from that, I gave them 20% of the business, which was terrible. Ouch. Why Who advised that? How did that happen? I mean, I had, no, I mean, you got to think about it. Like this is at a time when like nobody wants freckles. Everyone is getting laser to remove their freckles. This is in 2014. Full coverage foundation is at a peak. Everyone thought I was crazy. There was no market data to say that such a product would, could exist, would exist. And, um, and I'm a first time founder. I have had no experience. So nobody was like, ever going to fund me ever, you know? So not true. I don't agree with that at all. I was a first time founder. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and I got funded. You can get funded. You did well, get funded. You just now, got the, you just got bad I, terms. Yeah. Now I know this, but 
at the time it was like, you know, I had gone through the Kickstarter and I'd gone through like all these ups and downs. So I was like, you know what? I'd rather own 80% of something than hundred percent of nothing. So I took the leap. Nobody advised me on it. I did it on my own. It was, it's not my finest moment, but I try to, yeah. you know, be honest about it on podcasts and stuff like that, because I think it's important for people to hear. And then that was just an absolutely terrible, horrible experience with these investors. Um, and I ended up buying them out like a year later. So, phew, you know, they're not involved anymore, but it was that. It was a huge, huge mistake and a huge misstep from the jump. It, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure other investors looked at that and said, okay, well, if he's getting that, then what do I get for my 10K, 15K? I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got nothing by the end of it. <laughs> but that's, it's good to, you know, we all have our, um, you know, things that we are bumps in the road that we learn from. So, um, you know, we all have our stories, that's for sure. So what happened after that? You got the 15K, you're like, let's go. I found, you know, you're building your relationships with vendors, you're putting together the website. You know, was there any kind of other, did you have another way to kind of test whether or not this is something that would work? Or were you just gun ho regardless of any kind of metrics? Like what were your metrics for success? Um, yeah, there were no metrics. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Like literally none. The $15,000 was like, ran my first order. I think it was like less than 2000 units and it was just a test. You know what I mean? And at the time the investor was like, I could just be like throwing $15,000 away, but we'll see. Like maybe it'll, maybe it'll take, but I guess like backing it up before the Kickstarter, before I really like started figuring out how to actually create this product. I had run, um, and, and as I know now, this is not like enough of a survey audience, but I had run some Google surveys, um, and I had spent like $50 just asking people like, would you apply freckles if you could? Um, and so I think I got like, you know, maybe 500 answers. Um, and it was like a split survey. One was, would you apply freckles if you could? Yes, no. And the other one was like, if you could apply freckles as a makeup product, would you spend, you know, 10 to $20, 20 to $30? So that kind of gave me like a little bit of reassurance that I was on to something, but yeah. really it, it was just like something, like I said before, just something that I wanted to figure out like how to do it and how to accomplish. And that was important to me. And how did you find those 500 people to fill out the survey? It's, it's actually, it's just a function of Google. Like you go through, um, not Google analytics, but I can't remember exactly what it's called. I think it's just, uh, Google consumer surveys right. and you can like set up your demos, like age, location. So I think I set it up for like women, you know, 18 to 35 in metropolitan areas. Awesome. But yeah. No metrics. Really? Like that was it. That's something <laughs> though. That's something. Yeah. I mean, I went to a mall and asked 30 women if they would rent out their closets. So, I mean, 500 is a lot more of a, um, you know, proof of concept <laughs> to wider net, you know? Yes. So that's awesome. Um, so then you kind of had some sort of metric of, okay, there's a percentage here, majority that do want freckles and would pay X so that helped inform, I'm sure, a lot of decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, what else happened? So you launched, and how did launch go? How did you prepare for your launch? What was your launch strategy? Um, well, so after the Kickstarter, like I kind of had... The other thing that really kind of helped me go from Kickstarter to launch day was that my Instagram had uh, grown to like 5,000 followers, I think just from the Kickstarter. And so I was getting these messages like every couple of days, just somebody random from the internet saying like, Hey, I really love your idea for your product. And I really would love to, to buy a kit off you. If you have like one left over from the Kickstarter, and I was like, I literally, they never got made, but thank you so much for your support. So luckily I kind of had already these 5,000 people who were interested in, and had followed the brand on Instagram, like coming off of the failed Kickstarter. Um, but really, honestly, the whole launch was just like, it's up. That was it. Um, and of course, like my website crashed the first day, um, all of the, all of the things happened that, that, that do happen. And it was a WordPress site with one product on it. I mean, it was so tiny. That was it. And so the first day we did like a pretty good amount of sales, you know, for a, a nothing company with no marketing. I actually, 
I actually forgot to send out an email blast on the day of the launch. Like <laughs> that's how unprepared I was. And I was like trying to like get the production lead times down and like just get everything done. That by the time I got to launch day, I was like, oh my God, it's launch day. And I don't, I, there was no marketing plan at all. Um, and we sold, I think like $12,000 worth of product the first day. And then like 200, 200, 200, 200, 200. And it just plateaued completely after launch day. Um, what so that, was that? What kind of led to the the hype early on? And then why did it trail out? I think it just was, you know, people were, had been waiting for, it, it took probably about a year and a half from the Kickstarter to redevelop and launch. So people had been waiting for a while and I would post every once in a while, but you know, it wasn't like I had a marketing plan of any sort. Um, but do you so think they when, came mostly from social media or where did the 12,000 orders come from? Um, from, from social media. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. That was, that was it. There was no PR behind it. Like there was nothing behind it. It was just like a post on Instagram and that happened. Um, and then, but after that, like it just really plateaued, like completely went off the cliff. And again, like I went to school for branding and marketing, but I had no professional experience because I went into interiors thereafter. So, um, I just like, didn't even know how to market it at all. And then at the same time, I had these investors, right? And let me just like back up the story a little bit. I was working in interiors still. I had left my um, interiors jobs, but I was taking my own clients. So I had two like major full house remodel clients. And I was also working in sales for a digital advertising company, but just like very like client facing sales. Um, And then I was also starting Freck at the same time. So the investors were like, how are you not sending out email blasts? Why are you not posting on social media every single day? And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm trying to, but I'm also like, I have to live in LA. It's expensive. And I have, you know, my two full-time jobs plus starting this side project. I was going to the post office at like 8 a.m. before I would, you know, 7.30, 8 a.m. As soon as they opened, I would pack up the orders before that. So we get like six, go to the post office, drop the orders, then go to my job at nine. So I was like, I, you know, and then I'm in my job all day. Like you can't be posted on Instagram all the time. So they became super resentful of me and um, were like, you're not, you know, fulfilling your fiduciary responsibilities. And I was like, I totally understand that. However, I can't because I, like, I'm not getting paid. I have to have a job. There's, this is, you know, it's, it's just what it is. Um, and so eventually they actually asked me to give them the company for free. Right. Okay. Crazy. And they were like, um, can you, you, you should just give it to us and we'll, we'll like build it globally and all this stuff. And I was like, well, why aren't you doing that now? If you're already investing in the company, that's crazy. So eventually, and this was while the company was like slumping down and there was like no sales coming in. Um, and I, finally was just like, you know what, like if this train is going to, if this ship is going to go down, like I'll do it myself. So I bought them out completely. spent like every single last dollar that I had buying them out. And then I had this moment where I was like sitting outside my day job, like about to go in, I was like sitting in my car in the parking lot. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this another six months. Cause at this point now I've been spending like three years building this brand and I've not made a dollar ever. And it's just been like all of this, like ups and downs and emotional turmoil and heartbreak. Um, and I was like, I'm giving myself six months and I'm going to like hit it for six months. And I'm going to try everything I can, even though I'm not a seasoned CEO, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I really believe in this idea. And in six months, if it's not changed, I'll walk from it and it'll be, you know, a great learning experience. And I'll be proud of myself either way. But then it took off. Yeah. I mean, you, cause like, you don't have to be a God. seasoned CEO to run a startup that early. You just have to be able to get to work. <laughs> so you didn't need mm-hmm. the time to do it. Sounds yeah. like you just didn't have the time to do it because you were trying to work full time at the same time, which is always really mm-hmm. tough. Um, so what happened from there? So you realized I need to just get to work and bunker down and like make this a priority, I guess. And so what happened from there? Did you have to, did you end up trying to raise more money? Uh, no, at that point I was like, I will never take another dollar, (laughs) which now, uh, I have, but at the time I was like, so bummed, bummed about the whole experience, but, um, the most amazing thing happened. And I like tell her, 
heard this all the time. This woman named Sarah, her handle is Sarah on the internet, um, who is a, you know, a blogger and a YouTuber. She, I just got the like wild hair up my ass because I had never asked anyone to send them product before. Like this was so early on and like Instagram was in its early days as far as like sending influencers and bloggers product. Mm -hmm. So I hit her up because I saw that she was drawing freckles on her face and I was like, Hey, I would love to send you some products. I know this is like a crazy ask, but let me know if you're into it. And she's like, yeah, of course. That sounds great. Like, thank you. And I was like, cool. So I sent her out two bottles and she tried the product and she was like, oh, this is amazing. And then she did a giveaway on her page and she, without asking me, like I had no idea, just out of the kindness of her heart. She was like, I'm doing a giveaway for Freck. I have an extra bottle. Go like them or go follow them. Follow me and like this post and you're entered. And we like jumped 8,000 followers in one day. Um, wow, and that was really, wow. yeah. And, and it was also like really the start of it because at that point I was like, oh shit, influencer marketing. And from there it took off. And I think six months later is when I left my jobs. Finally. Six months later. So did you just focus on influencer marketing for those six months? Yes, I did. And then I also um, brought on a business partner a couple of months later once it started taking off. And that was really amazing because it also held me accountable. You know, like if someone is going to be pouring their sweat equity and not getting paid into this company and she really helped us like secure distribution in Europe. And that was a huge thing for us as well. But um, it really, really held me accountable. Like just because you're not feeling like sending out packages today, like too bad. This is the life you chose. This is what you yeah. gotta do. Like yep. get to work. So how did you find your business partner and how did that kind of uh, relationship start? Cause I know it's, it's pretty tough too. If you've worked so hard, you know, to get to where you are and you're like to bring on a business partner is always a leap of faith. Um, you've got to really trust them. So how did that work out? How do yeah, you find this person? It's a really like disgustingly cute story actually we have a very cute meet cute um <laughs> before I asked her to before I like encouraged her to come on for Freck um we had met because I was moving places I was between places in Echo Park before I moved to the house that I'm at now and I took over her sublease in like two blocks away from where I'm at right now but Prior to that, she um, was the director of a women's fashion showroom in LA here, um, one of the biggest on the West Coast. And she had reached out to me during the whole story. I'm mean, like, hey, I would love to represent your product. I think it's amazing. She's covered in freckles. It's like, I love my freckles. I love this product. I think it's amazing. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like, well, you're all like, I don't even have a product yet. But um, thanks for reaching out. And I kind of blew her off. Anyways, flash forward, I meet her off of Craigslist and I go to her apartment and she was like, are you the freckle girl? And I was like, um, yeah, hi, I'm Remy. <laughs> What's up? And she's like, oh my God, I reached out to you back in the day. And um, we literally became best friends like that day. So then flash forward like another year and um, we had been friends for a year and I just saw like how hard of a worker she was. And she was really like driven and just like a people whisperer and just like, such a hard worker and so incredible and like just so well-spoken and well-written and I was like this is somebody who I really would love to grow the business with um and there definitely were holes because we're actually pretty similar and I think that like if I were to do it again I would do the same thing but I always say now like when you're finding your business partner especially if you're in early startup phase like find someone who really fills your holes so you can balance balance each other out um, but I think we've done a really good job of like balancing each other out, but from our same side, but we definitely like in building team and hiring additional people have really had to find people who are a culture match, but are like on the opposite side of, of not so creative and a lot more analytical and more financial because that's not our, you know, forte per se. We're good at it, but we're not the best at it. Yeah. So that's awesome. So you find this, you know, friend slash she becomes your business partner. And it's always good to have a, a co-founder. I think someone to bounce things off of and mm -hmm. collaborate with. Um, what happened after that? I know you guys went out and raised around $2 million seed round last year. Talk to me okay. about fundraising. What were some of your biggest challenges and how did you overcome them? Yeah. So after, obviously after the, uh, the fiat, the 20% fiasco, we like really were not looking to 
take on fundraisers and does like saw does my business partner saw me through that even just as a friend was like oh man you're like it's it's a lot um and so what we actually ended up doing because when she came on we were six months away from launching our skincare line so we were really excited to just not be the freckles company and to be a clean beauty skincare and color cosmetic line we really believe that once you're able to do that our ability to raise would be surrounding like becoming a clean beauty brand with a unique, you know, differentiated point of view as opposed to being the freckle company. So we really wanted to hold off on raising. Um, so what we did is we actually took a ton of loans from like PayPal and Cabbage and stuff like that. And they were all obviously like personally guaranteed, which is terrifying <laughs> when you're a startup. Um, but we were able to hold for like over a year without raising any money at all. And then in June of 2019, we raised a small, very, very small angel round from a close friend of ours, um, which took us through our launch with Urban Outfitters and kind of developing, like continuing to develop our clean color cosmetics coming off of the skincare launches and then finally took our first like public, not public, but you know, our first like talked about uh, C Brown in last year, like you said. So it was cool. It was cool. Like we, um, it kind of felt like being like the pretty, the prettiest person at the party. Like we had a lot of investor interest and it was really exciting. And um, it, it was also like a great study for us and staying focused on like what was important to us and, um, in finding partners. And one of the things that was really important to us was like having consumer business experience and not only like significant growth, but then also exiting. Um, and we really wanted to find women <laughs> VCs, but we, uh, d- we didn't, but the priority for us, even though we would have loved to find women is, was like growth in, um, consumer brands. So there's, a, there's a lot of female investors. So what were the responses or did you just, I guess, kind of find investors that were interested early on that just happened to not be women or did you not seek out some of the funds that were, that are female focused? No, we did. Um, we did. We took so many meetings, which was like, you know, I mean, I think when you're a startup, it's like, uh, it's kind of surprising when you're like, oh shit, like we could get investment from people that like we can choose, you know, not just like, oh, we need money. We have to get, um, but the, it just was like the companies that we went with were a, we were already involved with them from a financial analysis point of view, but also, um, they were just, their portfolio brands were more aligned with us and not competitive with us, which is the challenge that we faced a lot, um, with a, a specific clean beauty brand has a lot of investments in the in the women-owned companies that we were looking for and we didn't want to you know get in bed with our competitors even though we respect them and love what they're doing <laughs> right interesting and so what um advice do you have for founders that are fundraising um i think you know fundraising is typically very challenging for most founders mm-hmm. so what um you know lessons did you learn along the way of what to do or not to do when you're uh, pitching or fundraising yeah um practice before for sure um we actually it's funny we ended up going with our the first person that we took the first person that we took an investment from but our first meeting with them our first pitch was like pretty clumsy so definitely practice um and i would say like start fundraising when you're not when you do not need to fundraise like keep that leverage you know i think um giving yourself time and space to really be able to analyze like who you're essentially getting married to, like you're, you're developing a very serious relationship with another company. Like you need the time to be able to analyze and like fill yourself out and find the right fit for you, as opposed to like having to rush for cash flow reasons or anything like that. Yeah. It's never a really good thing. If you're like, Oh wait, we need money. We're out of business in two weeks. If we don't fundraise right now, it's like, well, you might, might just need to start packing your bags because (laughs) it doesn't really work that way. No one writes you a check on the first meeting. Um, interesting. So 
you raised some money last year and you've had really good growth, you know, organic growth year over year. Um, what has been in terms of hiring, you know, what challenges have you faced in building your team and what advice do you have for founders, you know, putting together their team as well? Yeah, I've learned a lot over the years and honestly, by trial and error, I think that find people who are so much smarter than you and are so much more dialed into their vertical and let them teach you as a CEO. Um, and, and you'll be able to advise them and have the overall like overarching vision of the company and the creative direction and the, 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 the just the vision to be able to um, direct somebody in a field like, for instance, for me, like a CFO, I'm still able to direct them, even though finance is really not my forte at all. And so I think like trust in yourself. And also, I think, I know everybody says this, but I think that culture is so important. Um, I, I really believe in like employee stock options and just like making your work family feel validated. And the fact that they're coming to a job that like, honestly, I'm sure it's a little bit scary. Like, not super secure as a startup and so reward them and let them know that they're here for a good reason um and that they're they're taking a risk too you know and just understand that so what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business i'm sure lots of things we all as first founders <laughs> look back and realize wish we knew a bunch of things but what's something you wish you would have known i think it's a hard one because i think when you look back on everything it's like you are where you are because of your path. And I think that's like super valid and extremely important. And like, I, I actually wouldn't really change anything at all. Um, but if I had to pick something, I would say, you know, trust. I'm realizing now uh, more so than ever, actually, while we're working on product development for the next three years, as opposed to just like firing at the hip, like we have <laughs> done historically. Um, I'm realizing like I really should trust my gut a lot more and I should have, um, especially as somebody who doesn't have a background in beauty. Um, I think I didn't develop a couple ideas that in hindsight, I think would have been really amazing. And I was kind of talked out of them. Um, and, and I agreed at the time, you know, I fully agreed and, and decided not to. And now I'm like, Oh, I should have really trusted myself. And it's funny because the, you know, we're really not just the freckle company anymore, but that's what we're known for. And the name of the company is Freck Beauty. And I think as you get older, you kind of lose sight of that like gusto that I had when I started the company. And I was like, there's nothing that's going to stand in the way of me creating the first full freckle. Um, and so I think just hold, hold on to that as long as you can. And keep reminding yourself of that too, because you can, you can forget it and remind yourself and kind of flux in and out of that. As you go right. On. And so you started out with marketing and design skills. What skills have you had to learn on your own in order to get to where you are and build your business? Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because like interior design, the, <laughs> the reason why I left interior design uh, was because of breath. But one of the hit pain points for me while I was an interior designer was that you're actually a therapist. <laughs> like for real, especially if you're doing residential work and you're um, between like partners who have different design opinions, um, that can be really challenging. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not like trained in how to, how to manage conflict. And that's not something that I'm very good at generally. Um, and so that was always a stress point for me in interior design. But now I think that like my strongest skill actually as a manager is just putting people at ease and reminding everybody of the vision and why we're here and what we're, what what our end goal is and like not to get wrapped up in like the little day-to-day -day annoyances that everybody has no matter if you're a startup or a, you know established company awesome and so what's coming up next for uh freck beauty what can we expect i know you guys launched in sephora um what else do you guys having have coming up this year yeah so we launched in sephora in the beginning of march and then we were we started in stores in april mid-april which is huge and so exciting and when I actually thought of the idea of breath I was like could you ever imagine if we did play in the Sephora that would be so crazy um but we've spent the you know the first half of the year focusing on really like expanding our freckle franchise with Freck Noir and kind of expanding the shade range there 
Um, and now we're focused on our second bestseller, which is Cheek Climb, which is our lip and cheek tint with plant collagen. Um, and we are creating some new slimy textures this month, um, completely new products, not cheek tint, but still with that same innovative slime to matte dry down texture um, that our customers love. So stay tuned for lots of cool slimy goodness in June. Awesome. And so before we wrap up, do you have any uh, final advice to any other aspiring entrepreneurs that are tuning in? Um, I think that, so when I was, before I launched official, like actually launched on our WordPress site, um, but after the Kickstarter, I was out to dinner with a friend and she said that I had a lot of stick to and I had never heard that before. And that's something that I've always like really appreciated about myself. Um, and I think it's just, you know, being a founder and being an entrepreneur is hard, as we all know. Um, and I think just like trusting in yourself and sticking with it. And um, I, I'm really happy that I didn't quit my day jobs until you know two years into the company because it allowed me to make longer term decisions and and stick with and like really think about what exactly I wanted the company to be, um, as opposed to making decisions based off like okay, I have six months until my um, you know, savings account runs out. So <laughs> I think, uh, stick with yourself, know what you're, know what you're doing. And if you are a new founder, you know, take the time to figure that out. Don't put yourself into, but don't back yourself into a corner where you feel like you have to make decisions in a rush. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.